Please be seated. This will give you an indication of my age. One of the first movies that I ever saw in an actual movie theater was The Sound of Music. That 1965 Rodgers and Hammerstein musical is considered one of the greatest American movie musicals of all time. We love musicals, don't we? Whether they're Disney films like Frozen or Mary Poppins Returns, or Broadway productions like Hamilton or Wicked. There was something strange and yet magical about hearing that mother superior in The Sound of Music burst into full soprano glory as she taught Maria to climb every mountain. But honestly, bursting into song isn't something that usually happens in real life. While you're shopping at Target, or in the break room at work, outside, of course, of the recent flash mob phenomenon. <laughs> Still, the reason that flash mobs grab people's attention is because they aren't typical behavior. But in the opening two chapters of Luke's gospel, part of which we heard this morning, Luke all but morphs into Andrew Lloyd Webber, having four different characters burst into song. It's as if their joy is too great to be expressed in normal speech. Like those scenes on TV when Ellen DeGeneres tells the members of her studio audience that they're each being given a trip to Jamaica, and they just start screaming and jumping up and down. In Luke's account, overwhelming joy comes roaring out in song, like Mary's song that we heard today, known as the Magnificat, from the Latin word for magnify. The first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke have been described by New Testament scholar and theologian Marcus Borg as an overture, a summary or a symbol of the whole. Just like an overture to a symphony or an opera sounds the central themes of the longer work to follow, the first two chapters of Luke are his whole Gospel in miniature, according to Borg. In Luke's case, that means we get an introduction to three themes that he'll return to again and again. The role of women, the action of the Holy Spirit, and God's preference for those on the margins. And today's gospel passage hits all three of those notes. First, an emphasis on women. Luke mentions women more than any of the other gospel writers. This morning's reading describes a very tender scene when Mary visits Elizabeth. Two women in a reunion embrace, pregnant with the messenger and the message, belly to belly. Second, the involvement of the Holy Spirit. We're told that Elizabeth is filled with the Spirit, which leads her to cry out her insight-filled welcome the biblical equivalent of screaming and jumping up and down. She hasn't been given a trip to Jamaica, but Elizabeth understands what's going on. The Spirit has seen to that. And finally, God's attention to the poor and the marginalized. Luke writes a lot about poor people, 
and about the obligations of insiders to those who are outside. Mary herself was inherently an outsider. She was a teenage female in a culture controlled completely by adult men. As Mary and Elizabeth catch up and try to fathom the miracles they carry inside of them, Mary suddenly starts singing. And what kind of a song does a spirit-fueled, marginalized young woman sing? It's a protest song. It's not one that Mary composed in the moment, you know, on the back of a napkin. It's a song that she's probably heard her whole life, one that's been sung by women for lifetimes before her. Like if you or I were to start singing, We Shall Overcome, or Blowing in the Wind, or I Am What I Am. It's a cover of another woman's song, not word for word, but if she were sued for copyright infringement, Mary would almost certainly lose. She borrowed her lyrics from the lips of Hannah, another unlikely mother whose story is told in Hebrew scriptures in the first book of Samuel. Mary sings a shorter paraphrase of Hannah's song in her Magnificat, but she's got the same message, and it's revolutionary. This is the sound of one voice echoing through the generations. Episcopal priest Mike Kinman has pointed out that we've been taught to think of Mary in a sort of soft focus under layers of gauze and blue drape. He contends that the church has spent nearly 2,000 years mansplaining Mary in an effort to enfeeble her and to silence the power of her proclamation. We've taken this young, strong, active, brave woman of color and turned her into a mild, mute, white, passive, domesticated icon of purity. But if you really listen to Mary's lyrics, you can hear how bold they are. This is not a bland, cheery tune from the easy listening station. Instead, it's impolite and in your face. This song upends the status quo and it annoys people of comfort and privilege who insist on law and order instead of justice. He has scattered the proud. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. Mary symbolically takes a knee with this anthem to protest the terrible and deadly inequities of her day and ours. Effectively, she's saying, the lords of this world sell a vision of peace through power and conquest. But my Lord achieves peace through justice. And justice is on the way. I am bringing God's justice 
to life. Mary claims the mantle of the mother of the greatest revolution of all, Mike Kinman says, God's revolution of love and justice. And she claims the greatest power that a human being can ever have. Magnificat. My soul magnifies God. Mary's miraculous pregnancy enlarges her image of God and amplifies her understanding of what God is really like. It allows her to see what she didn't see clearly before. So this is who God is. The child that she carries will bear that vision of God, of God's intent, of God's dream for the world. Mary proclaims that a new age is about to begin, a reversal of the current order. She sings a vision of a world turned upside down, or depending on your perspective, right side up. A world in which the mighty arm of God sweeps away injustice and oppression, lifting up the vulnerable to safety and stability and lowering people of privilege from their comfortable perch. Hebrew scripture scholar Walter Bergman points out that Mary's message is both to the poor and to those who've kept them poor or who've benefited from their poverty. She names the oppressed, but there are never oppressed people without oppressors or oppressive systems. Almost none of us think of ourselves as rich or powerful, but almost all of us benefit from privilege that isn't universally shared. The longing in Mary's Advent anthem, as true in our day as it was in hers, is rooted in the obscene contrast between the way things are in the world and the way God would have them be. That's what this coming baby means, that justice, which is the public face of love, justice is who God is. Mary's sounding the first notes of God's coming revolution, and it begins with a song. Not a timid, trembling solo, but a loud, proud protest song. Mary proclaims a revolutionary message in a culture that crucifies revolutionaries. And later, when we hear the teachings of her son, it will be obvious that this song also served as his lullaby. Mary made sure that her firstborn child learned to magnify God too, describing and summoning a new world turned right side up. Mary was the literal mother of the revolution of love and justice that became the Jesus movement. These days, we claim to be the Episcopal branch of that movement, that revolution that's meant to harmonize and heal all people and all creation. 
justice is God's nature. And if we are made in the image of God, it's also our nature and our responsibility. So let me ask you, who does your soul magnify?